Hallelujah. Please help me celebrate Pastor Kingsley and Pastor Mildred again this morning. Thank you for the privilege, sir, ma. Thank you so much. Hallelujah. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for how this conference has been. Thank you for all the previous speakers. Thank you for all the previous sessions and all the great things you've done. And Lord, we thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And this morning I ask that your spirit will live big in us. Think through our minds. Speak through our lips. Unveil the word to us by your spirit. And we receive utterance in the Holy Ghost this morning. Thank you, Heavenly Father. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Can you say louder, amen, somebody? Hallelujah. I want to celebrate God's servant and his wife also again this morning. Can we put hands together? Thank you so much. Hallelujah. Please, you may be seated in Jesus' name. I'll continue from where I stopped last night on the island, and I'll just try and uh, say it in a way that you will not feel disconnected from what I started yesterday. So we started talking about faith as being a gift that God gives. God does not demand faith. He imparts faith. He gives faith. Faith is imparted by the preaching of the gospel and the hearing of it. When a man hears the gospel, he actually is imparted by faith when he receives that gospel. Romans 10, the 17th verse, Paul said, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So when the gospel is preached, God actually, through the gospel, imparts faith into the heart of a man. Because you see, without faith, and sometimes we uh, need to understand why faith is important. Why are, we, why are we spending this whole week teaching about faith? Because faith is very important. First of all, without faith, you can't even please God. Hebrews 11, the sixth verse says, So that without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he that must come to God must believe that God is and is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So you can't please God without faith. Faith is that important. Without faith, you cannot even be saved. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So we need faith to receive salvation. And so you understand that faith is a very important subject. And if it is so important, then where do we get the faith from? And that's what we talked about yesterday at the Island Center, that faith is imparted, do you see, through the preaching of the gospel. When the gospel is preached, faith is released. You know, in Luke 5, 17, Jesus was preaching, the Bible says the power of God was present to heal. Do you see, because when the gospel is preached, you see, that power of the gospel in itself contains the faith of God. Yet, at least try, in Acts 14, Paul was preaching, and the Bible says from the 8th verse, there was a man who was born impotent from his mother's womb who had never walked. The same heard Paul preach. And the Bible says Paul fastened his eyes on that man, perceiving he had faith to be healed. Where did the faith to be healed come from? It came from hearing what Paul was preaching. Galatians 3 and 5. Paul again speaking to the Galatians said clearly, he said, He therefore that ministered to you the Spirit, and walketh miracles among you, doeth ye by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith. So it means when the gospel is preached, people hear the gospel and faith is imparted through the hearing of the gospel. In fact, in Galatians 3 there, if you go to the next verse, verse 6, it says that is how Abraham was accounted for righteousness because he believed what he heard. What did Abraham hear? Verse 8 tells us that. He said the scripture foreseen that God would justify the hidden by faith preached before the gospel 
Do you see unto Abraham saying, in this shall all the nations of the earth be blessed? So it means that Abraham also was, was imparted with faith through the preaching. Did you see that? Of God's eternal plan, which is the gospel. And so you understand, therefore, God doesn't ask us to look for faith. He gives it to us. Faith is an offer. Faith is God's offer to man. In fact, it's very important to understand that faith comes from one source and faith must go back to the same source. Faith is from God and faith must only be in God. I'll repeat that again. Faith has one source. Hebrews, the 12th chapter, remember I said, looking out to Jesus, verse 2, the author and finisher of our faith. Actually, you know the hour in that sentence is italicized. So originally it's not there. It is the author and finisher of faith. It becomes our faith when we received it from him. So you understand, he is the source of our faith. And faith is unidirectional also. Faith is supposed to be in God and in God alone. Our faith must be in Jesus because our faith comes from him. So you understand, God offers faith. And so when a man hears the gospel and receives it, that man is imparted with the faith of Jesus and with that faith, it takes hold of the gift of salvation. So faith is a gift that God gives to man. You know, Paul was speaking to the Romans in Romans, the 12th chapter, the third verse. He said, I say to everyone that is among you by the gift given to me, according to the grace given to me, not to think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think. Notice Paul did not say not to think highly of yourself. He only said not to think more highly than you ought to think. It's good to think highly of yourself. And you know, the highly of yourself is basically what God says about you. When you think of yourself the way God sees you, you are thinking highly of yourself. In fact, if you don't see yourself the way God sees you, you are thinking too low of yourself. How does God see you? He sees you as his righteousness. I am the righteousness of God. Oh, come on, I can't hear you. Say it after me. Say, I am the righteousness of God. You know, you got to say it even if you don't yet truly, totally believe it because it is true anyway that we are the righteousness of God. He made him to be seen, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Who knew no sin? That we might be made. Notice he didn't say that we might become. That we might be made. Becoming, see, being a righteous person is not a process. It's not a becoming. It's happened in an instant. The moment you believed in Jesus, you were made righteous. So you must think of yourself the way God thinks of you. So back to Romans 12, 3, Paul says, not to think more highly than you ought to think, but to think soberly. Soberly means accurately. Did you see? According as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. And Paul is talking to those among you, he said, because that's a very important thing he said there to qualify his statement. It's in the context. You see, because when you read what Paul said to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul said to them, finally, brethren, pray for us. Did you see it? And that the word may have free cause and be glorified, even as it is with you. Then he, said, he went on to say, pray for us also that God will deliver us from wicked and unreasonable men. And then he said, for not all men have faith. All men have no faith. Now, when you read that, you'll be wondering, is he contradicting himself in Romans 12, 3? No, he's not. Because when he said, God has dead to every man the measure of faith, he already told us, every man among you, among you the saints, in other words, he's talking to the Christians at Rome, when he said, I say to everyone that is among you, that God has dealt to you the measure of faith. You know what Paul is saying? If you are a believer, you already have faith. So the, the believer doesn't have a faith problem. Do you see that? Because 
you couldn't possibly be saved without the faith of God. The reason why you are a child of God right now is because you actually received the faith when you heard the gospel and with that faith, you took hold of salvation. Galatians 3.27 says, we are all children of God through faith in Christ. You know, many times people say, everybody is a child of God whether they are Christians or not. Well, the Bible says differently. It says, we are only children of God through faith in Christ. And that tells you again, if you are a child of God, you already have faith. You already have faith. Say after me this morning, say, I have faith now. And I ask the person sitting next to you that just said that statement, ask them, are you born again? Are you a child of God? Uh-huh. Because if you're a child of God, then you already have faith. In Mark eleven twenty two, Jesus said, have faith in God. What he literally said was, have the faith of God or have the God kind of faith. Now, that God kind of faith is the faith we received at salvation. That is, God didn't give us another faith. He gave us his own faith. And in other words, whatever God has done with that faith, we can also do with that faith. One of the things we've seen God do with that faith is that God has used it. God used it to create the heavens and the earth. You see, the creation of the earth is the work of faith. And you will know because when Jesus described the way faith works, that is exactly what we see God doing at creation. Mark eleven twenty three, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall say to this mountain, Be thou removed, be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he says shall come to pass, he shall, he didn't say might, he said he shall have whatsoever he says. And if you look at Genesis 1, when God created the heavens and the earth, that is exactly what God did. God said words, he spoke words. And you can tell, of course, as he said those things, they came to pass. Genesis 1-3, God said, light be and light was. And you understand, the reason why light came because God said it is because God believed what he said. God did not doubt what he said. He believed what he said would happen. I like the way Matthew renders that, you know, uh, instruction of Jesus in Matthew 21-21. He said, Jesus said to them, he said, if you have faith and doubt not, he said, you shall not only do that which was done to the fig tree, he said, but you shall also say to this mountain, be thou removed and cast into the sea, and it shall be done. So you understand there, he says, you must ensure when you speak, you don't doubt in your heart. You see, because the way faith works is that there must be belief or faith in your heart, and then your mouth must say what your heart believes. It is the mouth and heart connection. Your mouth is the trigger, the speaker. Your heart is the believer. Romans 10.10, 10, with the hard man believed unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So your mouth, when it agrees with your heart, you unlock and unleash faith. You know, one of the things I've said over the years is that I believe strongly a person who wants to live the life of faith must not be a liar. Because when you tell lies, you would have to disconnect your mouth from your heart. Because people who tell lies, they know the truth in their heart, but they go ahead to say something different with their mouth. So a liar will not do well in the life of faith. If you're going to live a life of faith, you must make a habit of saying the truth all the time. In other words, say what you mean and mean what you say. That is how faith works. Jesus spoke to that fig tree in Mark 11. Mark 11, 14, he said to the fig tree, just nine words. No man eateth fruit from thee henceforth and forever. Just nine words. And the Bible tells us the following morning on their way, the disciples took note of the fig tree and it had dried up. It was not a coincidence. They knew evidently the words Jesus spoke on these things have affected it. They caught up with that tree. 
and it dried up from the roots. And because they marveled, Jesus had to explain to them, this is how faith works. And so he said to them, this faith you see in demonstration, you need to have it. Let me tell them, say, you need to have that faith. We tell them, say, if you are born again, you already have that faith. Oh, tell them again, say, if you are already born again, you already have this faith we are talking about. Can you shout somebody, say this, say this morning, say, I have the faith of God in me. Oh, yes. And you've got to always be happy about that, that you have the faith of God inside of you. It's the faith of the Son of God. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, you see, he said, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. He said, yet not I, the life, he said, the life I now live, I live through the faith of the Son of God. Who loved me and gave himself for me? He said the same thing in verse 16. He describes it as the faith of the Son of God. In other words, it is the exact same faith of God that is inside every child of God. And I began to say last night that, you see, the way faith works is that you've got to believe in your heart. And we've got to be very, very attentive and pay a lot of attention and give a lot of, you know, care to our hearts. You see, because there are two major things that can still, do you see, your progress in your walk in the faith. And that is doubt and unbelief. Now, for a believer, unbelief is something you have already overcome. You have overcome unbelief because if you did not overcome unbelief, you will not even be saved. The Bible tells us how that that sin of unbelief is the great sin that actually brings condemnation to a man. Mark 16, 15 and 16. Jesus said, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He that is, that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Verse 16, he says, but he that believeth not shall be damned. The reason for his damnation is his unbelief. In other words, you see, God does not really need to send people to hell. People go to hell of their own volition. And what, what makes them go to hell is that they reject the gift of salvation with their unbelief. So unbelief is actually rebellion. Unbelief is to kick against God. In John chapter 5 verse 24, the Lord Jesus said clearly and boldly, he said, he that heareth me and believeth on he that sent me hath everlasting life. He said, he shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death to life. So you understand clearly, when you believe, you receive the gift of eternal life. But in John 3 and verse 18, he said, he that believeth is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. And he tells us why. He said, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In other words, by his unbelief, he is condemned. By his unbelief, he is damned. So unbelief is rebellion. So if you have already received Christ as Lord and Savior, you have already overcome unbelief. However, you know, sometimes in some of the dealings of God with us, we still allow unbelief. God tells he's going to do something in your life, and then you outrightly just shut it down and say, that can never happen. And in such cases, even though you are in Christ, concerning that matter, you have rebelled against God's plan. And it's important for us to understand that unbelief is a real thing. It's a real thing the devil brings to people. You know, in Mark 6, Jesus went to his hometown where he was brought up. And the Bible says there he could do no miracles except that he healed a few sick folks. Literally what he says is that he healed minor ailments. Why? Because of their unbelief. They were offended in him. Verse 4. They said, it's not this the carpenter, his brothers and sisters not here with us. So he wanted to do it, but he could not. 
Why could he not do it? Because of their unbelief. Beloved, I tell you this morning, your unbelief can stop God. It will stop God from being able to accomplish what he desires to do in your own life. That's why I know there's an old song we used to sing. And I think that song needs to be modified. And they say, God said it, I believe it. That settles it. Not exactly. Because in Psalm 119 verse 89, the Bible doesn't tell us that. The Bible says, forever, Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Whether or not you believe God's word, it is settled. The, the real fact is the fact that God said it, that settles it. And I believe it, that settles me. So whether I believe God's word or not, God's word is going to work. Romans 3, 3 and 4. He said, if some do not believe, shall their unbelief make the faith of God of none effect? He said, God forbid. He said, let God be true and every man a liar. So whether or not you believe God's word, God's word works. God's word works. Oh, come on. I said, God's word works. And I tell you, it works every time, 100% of the time. The word of God has been tried already and it is proven to always work. But if you want it to work for you, then you've got to believe. You know, in James 1, when James said in verse 5, Is there of you who lacks wisdom? Let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally and obeys not. That in itself is a very important instruction. James is saying to us, God is a giver and he gives liberally, lavishly. In fact, there is a very strong word that describes the Greek word that was used by James there. That word is, he gives promiscuously. That is, he doesn't discriminate. And he didn't stop there. He said, he obeyed not. Obeyed not means when you come to God for something, that is not when God is trying to check whether you've done something wrong. No. Because to obey means to find fault. So he says, when you ask God for something, he's not looking to see if there's any fault to disqualify you. God is not trying to disqualify you. God actually wants you to have the things he promised. Oh, no wonder Paul said in Colossians 1.12, and that is prayer. He said, giving thanks unto the Father who has made us meet or qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the life. So when it comes to generosity, God is rather trying to qualify you to receive from him. Oh, but James goes on to say there is something that can happen that can disqualify you, and that's your unbelief. He said, well, let him ask, believing. Let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. He said, for the man who wavers, who doubts, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. He said, let not that man think that he will receive anything from the Lord. Notice, he did not say, let not that man think that God will give him. He said, let him not think he will receive. Meaning, even his unbelief will not change God's nature of generosity. It will not even stop God from wanting to bless you, but it will hinder you from taking what God is offering you. So, unbelief hurts you. Unbelief limits man a whole lot. No wonder Jesus marveled at people's unbelief. Imagine what would make Jesus marvel. Our Lord Jesus. He marveled at the unbelief of people. So, unbelief is rebellion against God. And I'll just say these things again because it bears repetition. In Hebrews 3.12, we saw the Israelites described, unfortunately, as poster children of unbelief. He says, take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil out of unbelief in departing from the living God. So unbelief actually pulls man away from God. It pulls man away from God. Because you need to understand, salvation is not man looking for God. Salvation is God who came for man. God, you see, salvation is not as though God is trying to answer a prayer that earth lifted up to him. No. We were not looking for God. We were enemies of God. God came after man. 
God, in fact, I sometimes like to put it this way. God stalks man, as it were. God comes after us, runs after us, and that is still his disposition forever. For God commended his love toward us, Romans 5, 8, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So notice that salvation is God looking for man. But unfortunately, through unbelief, a man departs from God. And that's what the Israelites did as we've seen in Hebrews 3.12. In Hebrews 3.7-10, we see that unbelief is described as hardiness of heart. Hardiness of heart. He said, wherefore, as the Holy Ghost said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. In the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works 40 years. And I said this yesterday, they saw miracles for 40 years, but he did not change them. Because miracles don't convert people. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with miracles. I do miracles. I mean it. I do miracles as he did on Sunday. This is what I'm saying. I do miracles. In fact, I believe any teacher of the world will flow in the miraculous. And in fact, miracles are most beautiful in a teaching atmosphere. I'll repeat that again. Miracles are most beautiful in a teaching atmosphere. Jesus Christ, when you read the four gospels, he didn't just do miracles. In fact, the people who were healed under the ministry of Jesus, they came to hear and be healed. They came to hear and be healed. You know, the challenge in our generation is that people want to be healed, but they don't want to hear. And that's why they usually will lose the healing. You see, because Satan walks like a pendulum. Wherever Satan has been, he's coming back. He's coming back. Remember what Jesus said about an evil spirit? When he goes out of a place... He, he, he goes into the wilderness and dry places looking for a new home. If he doesn't find, guess where he's coming back to? Where he was cast out from. And if he finds a place swept, cleaned up, and empty, what does he do? He doesn't jump in immediately. He goes to look for seven demons worse than himself. And they together enter that man. And the end of that man is worse than his beginning. Meaning it would have been better for him to not have even been delivered in the first place. So you understand, when people want miracles without teaching they actually endanger their own future. Because the devil is going to come to challenge everything God does for you. You had better be sound. Better be established in the word. Because when he comes back, he won't come back in the service where you are ministered to. He's coming to meet you when you are alone at home. And if you didn't receive teaching, when the devil comes, you will not know how to face him. You know, there's something I like to say. You see, everyone must learn how to be alone with God. Because somewhere along the line, you will be alone with the devil. You will face the devil somewhere. You will face the devil somewhere. And if you don't learn to be alone with God, you will not know what to do when the devil comes to face you. So they came to hear and to be healed in the ministry of Jesus. They came to hear and to be healed. And Jesus is our pattern for ministry. So we must also ensure that miracles are done in the atmosphere of teaching. Believers must look for God, not just the things that God wants to offer. And so you understand, the Israelites for 40 years... They saw miracles, but it did not convert them. Again, we also see that unbelief is very costly. Verse 18 and 19, Hebrews 3. And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not. Did you see that? To them that believed not. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Did you see that? They could not enter in because of unbelief. So unbelief has grave consequences now the second issue is doubt and what is doubt number one doubt is wavering when a person is in doubt what it means is they are wavering 
That is, they are not stable, as it were. They've allowed alternatives. They've allowed other things, did you see, to come in. They've allowed other things to take their attention. And I'll tell you one thing, one of the greatest enemies that we will fight till we see Jesus is distraction. There will always be things trying to get your attention. Things trying to take your attention and focus off Jesus. And you will see how that doubt is something that can be dealt with. But first of all, you notice in 1 Timothy 2.8, Paul says, I will therefore that men will lift up holy hands in every place without wrath and without doubting. Without wrath and without doubting. In Matthew 21, 21, remember Jesus said, if you have faith and doubt not. And I've discovered most times, like I told you earlier, a believer doesn't have a faith problem. The issue is not whether your faith is enough. The problem is the doubt you have accommodated. If you will get rid of doubt from your heart, you will see how your faith will work. You will see the genius of your faith. And so doubt means to waver. Doubt means to waver. Number two, doubt means to be double-minded. Doubt means to be double-minded. In other words, it means your mind is in two places. When your mind is in two places, you're looking at God, but you're also looking at perhaps it might not happen. You see, Abraham, our father in the faith, the Bible tells us about him, he had reasons to doubt what God said. In other words, there were alternatives that were contrary to God's word. And if he had accommodated those things in his thoughts, he would have actually got into doubt. Because the Bible tells us of the deadness of his own body and the deadness of Sarah's womb. But glory to God, Abraham didn't let that worry him. And how did he avoid that from happening or prevent that from happening? The Bible says he considered not his own body now dead. Neither did he consider the deadness of Sarah's womb. The Greek word therefore, consider not this katanoel. It means to not look at it, to not give regard to it at all. So it means that there will always be contrary evidences to what God says to you. But if you are going to walk in faith, you've got to look away from those things. It's a deliberate act. You make up your mind not to look in those things. Look at those things. You look away from them. If at the right rendering of Hebrews 12 verse 1 is that, verse 2 rather, looking away from all that will distract. I think that's the amplified version. Looking away from all that will distract and then unto Jesus Christ. And I tell you, there will always be things to distract us. There will always be contrary evidences to what God says. It is you and I that must make up our minds to look away from those things. Because you see, your mind is your own. And you can choose what your mind will focus on per time. In fact, it is the duty of man to give his mind a focus. It is your duty. God is not going to do that for you. You are the one who will make up your mind what you're going to fix your mind on. I like the way Kenneth Hagin used to say it. He said, you know, your mind is like the birds of the air flying. Birds, you cannot stop birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them from laying a nest on your head. So you can't stop thoughts from coming in your mind. Thoughts will always come to everybody's mind. But you see, you are the one that will choose which thoughts to dwell on. And glory to God, the Bible tells us in Matthew 6, Jesus was speaking and severally Jesus said, take no thoughts. Because he shows you that thoughts are taken. So it means you can choose not to take certain thoughts. And that's what Jesus was saying there. Take no thoughts what you will eat. Take no thought what you will wear. Take no thought. Take no thought. Take no thought. 
Then Apostle Paul came and gave us a very great blockbuster on that. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul said, we take thoughts captive. In other words, there are thoughts that you need to arrest and you slam them down and say, I'm not going to think this way. For example, how do you think about your future? You see, one of the things I will say to you before I talk, talk to you about that further is the fact that you see, you don't conquer thoughts with thoughts. When wrong thoughts fly into your mind, don't keep quiet and hope to conquer those wrong thoughts with another thought. It will never work. You conquer thoughts with words. When your mind is going in a wrong direction, then you open your mouth and speak against those thoughts. That is how you arrest thoughts. That is how you slam them down. That is how you destroy them. So you don't just keep quiet. You see a lot of people run into depression. You know why? There are so many wrong thoughts in his mind, he doesn't know how to deal with them. He's struggling in his mind inside him, trying to defeat those thoughts. And the more he tries to stop thinking of that thing he's thinking about, the more he thinks of it. Let me ask your neighbor, have you ever experienced that kind of thing before? Uh, if I taught them, say, you're too quiet, my neighbor, you're too quiet this morning. If I tell them, say, is this your voice, your own, or did you borrow it? I uh, say, so shout like your voice is just say, my mind is my mind. Ah, uh-huh, you're coming alive. You're coming alive. So you don't see that you're struggling with the thought in your mind, trying to use other thoughts to conquer it. It never works. It never works. You open your mouth and you speak against those thoughts. And you don't speak against them, you know, for example, if thoughts of dying is bombarding your mind, you don't go saying, uh, I'm not going to die. No, no, no. You're actually fueling it more. You say what the word says concerning that situation. You say what the word says. If the devil is telling you you're going to run crazy, you're going to run mind, you're going to lose your mind, what should you say? I have a sound mind. I have a sound mind. God has not given me the spirit of fear. He has given me the spirit of love, of power, and a sound mind. And then you begin to thank God for it and say, thank you, Jesus, my mind is sound. Oh, glory to God. The older I get, the sharper I become. I remember things so well. I am of quick understanding. Thank you, Jesus. And you keep saying that and saying that and thanking God for it. That is how you deal with those thoughts. You see, because the devil wants to give you a direction. You are the one that must not receive that direction from the devil. Your direction for life must come from the written word. That's why the written word must be sacrosanct in your life. It must be final authority. Anything God's word says must be final. No alternatives to it. You see, doubts come when we entertain alternatives to the word. Doubts arise when we entertain alternatives to the word of God. So you understand that doubt is to be double-minded. Number three, doubt is belief that lacks conviction. Doubt is a belief that lacks conviction. So you see a lot of people, they believe some things but not really deeply. They are not really convinced. You see, it is actually the difference between faith and what is called mental assent. You see, mental assent is the fact that, well, you just mentally agree to something, but you are not really convinced of it. And I tell you, that is where prayer comes in, in living the life of faith. Because I've discovered that prayer will take information from your head and convert it to revelation in your spirit. It converts it to conviction in your heart. If you don't spend time praying, you can know a lot of scriptures, but you will not be convinced of any of it. This is the reason why after Paul labored, labored in the word over all those churches, you see him spending time to pray. And you see Paul saying concerning the church of the Ephesians. From Ephesians 1 
You see Paul speaking from verse 15. He said, I cease not to pray. I cease not to pray. The same thing in Colossians 1.9. Cease not to pray. Always making mention of you in my prayers. Always making mention. So why was he praying for them? Because he realized the things he had taught them. Without prayer, it would just be information. But with prayer, did you see? Convictions of heart are bettered. And so, but when that conviction is not there, you see people who know a lot, but they really have conviction about very little. And that brings them to a place of doubt. So in church, everybody can shout, you know, I believe it. God said it. I have it. But when the rubber meets the road, that is when you can see who is really convinced from who is not convinced. And then you see believers in doubt. So doubt is belief that lacks conviction. Number four, doubt is distraction that comes from contradictions. I repeat it, doubt is distractions that come from contradictions. In Matthew 14, the Lord Jesus Christ had told Peter to step on the water and Peter saw him coming and he said, if it be you, Lord, bid me come. And Jesus told him, come. And Peter began to walk on water. And the Bible tells us in verse 30, but when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. Notice that. He was walking on water initially because his focus was only on what Jesus said. But the moment he saw the wind boisterous, the wind boisterous is a contradiction to what Jesus said. Now, Jesus didn't say that contradictions will not come. You see, many people misunderstand the message of faith. The message of faith or the word of faith does not say that we'll go through life on the flowery bird of ease. No. We're not promised that life is going to be all rosy. If anything at all, Jesus said to his disciples, in this world you will have tribulation. That one is a guarantee. You can be sure of that. So the life of faith does not exempt us from the challenges of life, but it guarantees us a victory over them. It guarantees us of the fact that anything we go through, we will overcome. I don't know about you, but I will always overcome. In fact, I don't know about you, I always win all the time. Hallelujah. Second Corinthians 2.14, thanks be to God, which always causes us to triumph. He doesn't cause us to triumph once in a while. No, he always causes me to triumph. Let me tell somebody, preach it to somebody for me this morning. Say, he always causes me to triumph. Oh, say it again, say it again. Say, he always causes me to triumph. Tell another person, say, new neighbor, I've got something to tell you this morning. Say, I don't know about you, but as for me, I always win. Can you give the Lord a shout if you believe it? Oh yeah, that is one of the things winners always do. They shout a lot. Oh, they shout. Do you, do you, do you have a shout inside of you? Do you have a shout inside of you? Do you have a jump inside of you? Do you have a jump inside? Do you have a, a praise left inside you? Oh yes. Hallelujah. All right, sit down, sit down for a while. And so you understand, when Peter saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried, saying, Lord, save me. Verse 31, and immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore did thou doubt? So Jesus said to him, you were doing fine until you allowed doubt. And where did the doubt come from? You looked at the contradiction. So he's saying to you, the contradictions will always be there, but don't look at them. Pay them no attention. Just keep looking at Jesus. Let me even say to you, when you release faith for something and it begins to work, don't get distracted. 
Don't get distracted. Because that is when people now get so overexcited about the results they're already seeing. And they take their eyes off the word of God. And right there and then you begin to see the thing, the great thing that was building up begins to go down right there. Your focus must always be on Jesus Christ. Must always be on the word of God. But good news is doubt can be dealt with. Doubt can be dealt with. Write this down. Dealing with doubt means dealing with alternatives and objections to God's word. I repeat that again. Dealing with doubt means to deal with the contradictions, or sorry, alternatives and objections to God's word. And if you're going to do that, you've got to identify your distractions. What are the sources of these distractions? You must identify them. Sometimes it is too much entertainment. You're listening to the news too much. You're watching too much worldly things. Entertainment is not bad, but when it's excessive, it begins to affect your faith. It begins to affect your walk with God. You see, the reason why many Christians struggle to pray for long, let me tell you simple, in a, in a very simple way. Prayer is a matter of interest. Now, if you, if you pay too much attention to physical things, carnal things, did you see that? Even good things, physical good things, if you give too much attention to them, your interest in the things of the Spirit will start going down, and then you realize you start struggling to spend time with God in prayer. Did you see that? And that's why I expect... If you have been coming for a meeting like this all week, it's a great blessing, I tell you. Do you see that coming for these meetings daily fuels your interest, fuels your passion for the things of the Spirit. And then you find that it, it becomes easier for you to pray. It's not rocket science. If you consume all manner of entertainment content, social media content, and all kinds of stuff that is nothing related to the Spirit, it's not, it's, it shouldn't be a surprise to you when you pray for 10 minutes and you're thinking you already spent one hour, the reason is because your interest is going down. We are told to set our affection on things above, not on things on the earth. And your affection is basically a matter of your mind, your focus, the focus of your thoughts, the fo focus of your mind. And so you must understand, you must identify what are the things that affect your spirit, that causes you to doubt the things of God that distracts you and then you eliminate them. One of the ways you eliminate them is to cast down imaginations and every eye thing that exalts itself against, not above. Paul said there are eye things that exalt themselves against. They can never be above God. Nothing can be above God, but they can be against God. You must identify those things and cast them down. Cast them down. Number two is to cut off from associations and influences that feed carnality in your life. There are certain conversations you can't entertain if you want to walk in faith. If you want to live by faith, there are certain conversations you cannot entertain. There are certain associations you cannot keep if you're going to live the life of faith. Everyone must have their own faith company. After they are threaded Peter and John in Acts 4, verse 23, the Bible says, being let go, they went to their own company. You must have your own company. And you notice the company Peter and John had was good company. Because when they went back to those folks and they told them all that the high priest and the Sanhedrin had said, those guys did not say, well, you know, let's be more careful and let's just tone it down a little bit. Oh, no. The Bible says they lifted up their voices with one accord and prayed and asked God for boldness, verse 29, to speak the word of God and that God will cause signs and wonders to be done in the name of his holy child. And glory to God, did God answer their request? Oh, yes, he did. Because by verse 33, we see the Bible says, with great power, they gave witness to the resurrection. 
of Jesus Christ and great grace was upon them all. In other words, they got stronger because they had the right company. In Acts 16, verse 25, Paul and Silas were in prison. Glory to God, that was another good example of good company. They didn't look at each other and began to complain. Silas didn't say to Paul, you preach too much. You see, I've been warning you, this your mouth will put us in trouble. They didn't say that. Silas didn't look at Paul and say, you know, preaching was good enough. Why did you have to cast out the devil from that girl? Because it was casting out the devil from that girl that caused them to be thrown in jail. Because they cast out that demon from that girl, it was a spirit of divination. Actually, the literal Greek word used for that word divination is python. It's python. So be careful. These days, there are some ladies dressed up, but that's python. (laughs) Because she was saying all kinds of things. And that's why you got to be careful. You see, there are prophets of God, but there are also false prophets in town. You see, when you see a prophet who doesn't teach sound doctrine, but only wants to call your phone number, you got to be careful. You got to be careful because that's what this girl was doing. She was saying, these are the men that show us the way. What she was saying was, in quote, correct. But you see, spirits, when they make sound, they expose themselves. And a person who is designing can tell. The Bible says she did this for many days. But suddenly, at some point, Paul was grieved in his spirit. He knew somewhere in his heart there was no witness in his heart bearing to that spirit. Uh, He's saying the right things, but this doesn't seem to be coming from God. So just that a person is saying all the right things doesn't mean they are from God. You've got to discern the spirit within. Discern the spirit within. And Paul turned about and rebuked that spirit instantly. And it came out of that lady. And so you've got to understand that when we you surround ourselves with right association, it actually helps us in faith. Abraham, the Bible tells us, was strong in faith. And it tells us he was not weak in faith. Romans 4. So it means you can be strong in faith. It means you can be weak in faith. And it's all on you, not on God. There are certain associations that will make you weak in faith. There are certain associations that will make you strong in faith. So you've got to identify the influence your associations have on your faith walk. Another thing you've got to do is to strengthen your conviction. Strengthen your conviction by feeding on God's word. Feed on God's word. Smart Christians understand that you can't live on past form spiritually. You can only survive on current form. You can't live on yesterday's strength. You got to keep feeding and feeding and feeding and feeding on the word. Reading God's word, eating God's word. My son, attend to my words, incline your ears to my saying, keep them in the midst of your heart. Let them not depart from your eyes, for they are life to those who find them. Proverbs 4, 20 to 22. And health or medicine to all their flesh. The word of God is medicine. The word of God brings health. The word of God will make you strong. It will feed your soul. Hallelujah. It will make you very sound-minded. God's word will build you up. Acts 20, 32, Paul said, I commend you now to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among them that are sanctified. The word of God makes us strong. We've got to feed on it. As a matter of fact, if you're not feeding on God's word, how do you want to grow stronger in faith? F.F. Bosworth said, faith begins when the will of God is known. Faith begins when the will of God is known. Can I take him popularize that statement to our own generation here? Did you see? But it was F.F. Bosworth who first said, faith begins when the will of God is known. If you don't know the will of God on a matter, you can't believe God for something you don't know is God's will. It's not possible. So you've got to really feed on God's word. When you feed on God's word, you are strengthening yourself in faith. 
What does God say about healing? You've got to know it. What does he say about your identity? You've got to know it. You've got to know it. You're struggling with a sinful habit? Feed yourself with more, more word. The word cleanses. Psalm 119 verse 9. Wherewith shall a young man cleanse his way? He said, by paying attention, do you see, according to thy word. Verse 11, thy word have I hid in my heart, that I be not sin against you. The same chapter, Psalm 119. The Lord Jesus praying in his high priestly prayer, John 17, 17. Jesus said, sanctify them by thy truth. He said, your word is truth. John 15, 3, he said to them, now ye are clean through the words that I have spoken unto you. So the word cleanses us. It cleanses our minds. Renews our minds. You see, a man who doesn't feed on God's word will eventually find himself spiritually rusty. Things will not be fluid anymore. But when you feed on the word of God, you become very pliable and flexible for the spirit of God to carry you in any direction he wants. So we must feed on the word of God. As a matter of fact, you must know the word of God is so important to your life that God prioritizes the knowledge of his word above all things. The Bible tells us in Hosea 4, 6, he said, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. He said, because you have rejected, did you see, knowledge? He said, I will also reject you. That you be no more a priest unto me. He said, seeing you have forgotten the law of thy God. He said, I will also forget your children. So knowledge is powerful. In fact, when he said, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. The word destroyed there is not destroyed the way we know it in English language. The original Hebrew word there means they go into silence. And therefore perish. That is... They don't know God's plan, so they are brought into silence. You know, silence is synonymous to destruction, to death. Because anything that has life makes sound. When a child is born, you know that that child is alive because the child must cry. In fact, if it doesn't cry, they will beat that child to cry. The generator power in this place is making sound where it is. If it has life, it will make sound. In the spirit, just talking is not sound. It is when you speak according to the word that you are making a sensible sound in heaven. So lack of knowledge puts you in silence as though you are dead. So you got to know God's word. Job 22, 21, acquaint yourself now with him and be at peace. He said, thereby good shall come unto thee. Verse 22, he said, receive, I pray thee the Lord from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. Lay up his words in your heart. You must store the word of God inside you. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, not scarcely. You eat God's word. It is food. Job 23.12, I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Jeremiah 15.16, do you see that? He said, your words were found and I did eat them. And they were to me the joy and the rejoicing of my soul, for I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. So the word of God is food. First Peter 2.2, 2, as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. You know, many times we read First Peter 2.2, we assume as it were, like with some popular scriptures, that Peter is only talking to newborn babes. No, Peter is not talking to babes at all. He's talking to everybody. He said, as newborn babes, all of us should act as newborn babes in our desire for the word. How do newborn babies desire milk? They are craving for it. They are craving for it. Because you see, there is a thirst. He hasn't tasted it enough. He wants more. He's craving it as though he never tasted it before. You see, when you say Christian, say, you know what? I've heard that teaching before. I don't need to hear it again. He doesn't know it. He doesn't know it. He doesn't know it. He doesn't know it. As a matter of fact, growing up spiritually is not about hearing new things, per se. It's about mastering the same old things. 
getting better with disabled things. Philippians 3, 1, Paul says, finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. He said, for me to repeat the same things to you is not grievous. He said, but for you, it is safe. You see, because repetition is the life of truth. If you don't say it long enough, you will never believe it. You haven't heard it enough. That's the reason why you don't really get, you don't have conviction about it. You know, while I was growing up, did you see, hearing the word of God as a young believer, they taught us then and said to us, you have not really heard the message until you have heard it ten times. I have heard Kenneth Hagin the most in my life than any other preacher. And sometimes I pity him because I rewind him, pause him, fast forward him, drag him back, drag him forward, and just tell him, stay there for now. <laughs> I've heard Hagin this morning for over one hour. The Hagin the message I listened to this morning, I've been listening to it for the past four days. The same message. Over and over. Come meeting 1998. Over and over and over and over again. I rewind it. I listen again. He says something. I want to hear that same thing again. And those same things I've been listening to for 23 years. I'm not tired of listening to it. Because I realize the more I hear it, the more convinced I am about those things. For example, I'm so convinced I can never be stranded in life. It can't happen. Now you see, sometimes you may begin saying these kind of things and your conviction is not yet strong. But keep saying it and keep listening to it and you start seeing the conviction growing and growing. And that's why you must be planted in a local church. The believer is likened to a tree. They that be planted in the house of the Lord, Psalm 92 verse 13, shall flourish in the course of their God. You've got to be planted. 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 A tree jumping from one place to the other will never grow. It will wither. It shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, Psalm 1 verse 3. Its leaves shall not wither. It bringeth forth its fruit in the season, and whatsoever it doeth, it shall prosper. You got to be planted. You can't be changing pastor like changing underwear. You must have a pastor. And I'll tell you something. These days, you know, sometime last year, the Lord, you know, gave me a revelation and said to me, he said, you know, the fact that people relocate should not make them necessarily change church. Because technology has made it possible for you to remain a member of your church wherever you go in the world. As a matter of fact, your relocation should wake you up that you now have a responsibility. You've been taking and taking. It's now, it's now time for you to do something. Be an extension of your local church. Gather people to join online live streaming. Start inviting them from there to become a cell. From a cell to become a church. Don't you want to be known as the one who took your church to America, to Canada, to South Africa? Because imagine if you have to change location like four or five times in your lifetime. That means you will change all five times. If you have to do that, I tell you, it's going to affect your Christian life. We must use the technology to our advantage and stay planted. Now, when you are planted, that is when you get the chance to hear the same things again and again and again and again. That's why church will teach series. So for a whole month, it's one subject. And you are hearing it week in, week out. You see, you hear it until it's almost annoying you. In fact, if the message is not beginning to sound annoying, you have not yet heard it. You have not yet heard it. By the time you are hearing it, you're like, ah, pastor, okay, I've heard. The judge shall live by faith. Okay, I've heard. Even in the Bible, you see repetitions. The judge shall live by faith appears several times in scripture. Habakkuk 2.4. His soul that is lifted up in him is not upright within him, for the judge shall live by his faith. You see the same thing in Romans 1.17. According as it's written, the just shall live by faith. You see the same thing in Romans 4. Did you see that? Verse 3, the just shall live by faith. 
Did you see? You see also, sorry, Galatians 3.11, the just shall live by faith. Hebrews 10.38, the just shall live by faith. If any man draw back, my soul shall take no pleasure in him. You know what he's saying? If any man draw back from living by faith. Because the just shall live by faith. 2 Corinthians 5.7, we walk by faith and not by sight. It was that faith that God reckoned Abraham for. Genesis 15.6, he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Romans 4.3, he believed God, he was counted to him for righteousness. Galatians 3 and verse 6, he believed God, he was counted to him for righteousness. James 2, 23, he believed God and he was counted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. Just because he believed. Let me say this as I begin to close. Faith is the highest morality before God. I'll repeat that again. Faith is the highest morality before God. If you don't believe in the finished works of Christ, be a good man all you want, you will go to hell. Until you believe in the gospel, you are not moral before God. And that's why you see the gospel is not morality. Because morality is a subset of the gospel. It's a subset of righteousness. A righteous man will be moral. But a moral man is not necessarily a righteous man. I'll say it again. A righteous man will be moral. But a moral man is not necessarily a righteous man because righteousness is not by works of morality. Righteousness is by faith. Romans 5, 1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. Wherefore, where is boasting then? Romans 3, 27, it is excluded. By what law of works? He said, nay. He said, by the law of faith. By the law of faith. He said, what shall we say, Abraham, our father, according to the flesh, had found? Romans 4, 1. He said, for if Abraham had been justified by works, he had whereof to glory. He said, but not even before God. In other words, even if you try to fulfill all the law, you can boast amongst men. But when you come to God, God will tell you, where is the righteousness you achieved by the law? He says, it's dirty. Get out of here. The only way you are accepted before God is by faith in Jesus Christ. It is the height of morality. You see, a case in point. Abraham told a lie and said his wife was his sister. It was a broad daylight lie. And then, out of integrity, Abimelech was the moral man in that equation. And Abimelech took the woman. You said she's your sister. So he took the woman and was going to marry her. At night, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, you're a dead man. Because you've taken the wife of a righteous man. Who is the righteous man? The man who told the lie? If God will deal with anybody, it should have been Abraham. But no. You see, because God didn't mark it based on who is wrong or right. God marked it based on who is in and who is out. So you see, in God's equation, he looked at Abimelech, no faith. He looked at Abraham, faith. He said, guy, you are my guy. This one, I'm sorry, with all your morality, you are going to die now. Because the guy is even boasting. He said, I did it in the integrity of my heart. God said, who is asking about the integrity of your heart? I'm asking you about the faith in your heart, not the integrity of your heart first. If you don't believe in God, you don't weigh much before God. I said again, if you don't believe in God, you don't weigh much before God. Righteousness puts you on the scale. And makes you weigh the same thing as God. Let me say to you, the moment you receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, your weight of righteousness is the same weight as God. I weigh the same thing as God on the scale of righteousness. God is not more righteous than you. Because it was his righteousness he gave us. And that's why Jesus himself said that God loves us the way he loves Jesus, the exact way. Oh, the first time I heard that it was Kenneth Hagin, about 21 years ago. I was like, what? I didn't want to believe it until he quoted it. John 17, 23. That they may know that you have loved me the way you love them. I say, wow. God loves me the same way he loves Jesus. 
Because he has accepted us in the beloved. Ephesians 1, 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. We are as beloved as Jesus is. You see, we were brought into the fellowship of the Son. 1 Corinthians 1, 9. God is faithful by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus. That's a strong statement Paul made there. Because the word fellowship simply means a union where all the parties share all things in common. So when he says it is a fellowship of the Son, it means that whatever rights Jesus have is the same rights I have. Whatever privileges Jesus have is the same privileges I have. Whatever position Jesus occupies is where we occupy. So we have equal position and therefore we have equal possession. Now you see, your head can never agree with that. Because it's not for your head. It's for your spirit. I and Jesus are one. Behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us, First John 3, 1, that we should be called the sons of God. Galatians 4, 6, because he has sons, God has shed forth the spirit of his son into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. Notice, crying, not shedding tears. That is boldly saying, God is my father. You know, a few years ago, the Lord said to me, the boldness, the boldest any man can get is for him to say, God is my father. There is no boldness beyond that. To say, when Jesus said, God is my father, John 5, 17, my father walketh either door and I walk. The, the Jews went mad. That how dare you call God your father? Don't you understand the implication? You are making yourself equal with God. You are simply saying you share qualities with God. And Jesus didn't stop saying it. Every time he called God, Father, Father, Father. Because that's who we are. Romans 8, 14, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. They are the sons of God. That word led there is the Greek word ago. It means to bring forth. As many as been brought forth by the Spirit. Because it is by the Spirit we were born again. Not according to works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy. Titus 3, 5. He saved us by the washing of regeneration, notice, and by the renewing of the Holy Ghost. So, the, the new birth is of the Spirit. John 3, 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Those who are born again were brought forth by the Spirit of God. If the Holy Ghost didn't bring you into this kingdom, you are not in this kingdom. When he spoke to Nicodemus, John 3, 3, except the man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 4, Nicodemus said, how can the man be born again? Shall he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? And Jesus looked at him and said, this guy doesn't even understand what we are saying. He confused him a little further. Verse 5, except the man be born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, water and spirit is one and the same thing. He's using the water to describe the spirit. So he's saying, except the man be born of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So the spirit of God is the agency that brought us into Christ. Of his own will begat he us by the word of truth. James 1.18. But you read also in John chapter 1. You see in verse 11. He said, he came unto his own, his own received him not. But as many, verse 12, as received him to them gave he power to become sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the man who is of God is the man that was brought forth by the spirit. And you've got to be bold about that. That God is my father. And there is nothing the devil can do about that. You know, that will never change. I said that will never change. God will never disown you. Oh, somebody did not hear me. Can you jump to your feet? I'm rounding up now. I said God will never disown you. Hey, come on. I said God will never disown you. Those are the truths in the word of God that you must feed on. Eat it raw. Eat it raw. Psalm 119 verse 105, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. 
verse 130. The entrance of thy word giveth light, it giveth understanding to the simple. Do you see this? In verse 160, he said that word is true from the beginning and all every of thy righteous judgments endure forever. 162. You know, yesterday as we were closing, pastor was talking about rejoicing about the word. And he was asking me for if there's a scripture. So I, I, I was saying it yesterday. Psalm 160, 118 verse 162. I rejoice at thy word as one who found great spoil. You should always be excited at the word of God. Psalm 119 verse 165. He said, great peace have they that love thy law. And nothing shall offend them. The word of God will keep you from offense. People can say what they like, do what they like, but you consult yourself in the word of God. Because you know where the word is taking you. And if the word is taking you somewhere this morning, can you rejoice at the word of God? Can you rejoice at the word of God, somebody?